All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Honest Defense podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Brandon Weikert. Brandon is a geopolitical analyst who manages the Weikert Report, World News Done Right. He's also a contributor to the Asia Times and the American Spectator and a contributing editor at American Greatness. Brandon writes regularly for the Washington Times, and his national security writings have appeared in a number of major publications. His new book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. It's an excellent and frightening book. But Brandon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And it's always such a joy to, to see my book in other people's hands. So thank you for, uh, for doing that. It really was a fascinating book. But my problem was, you know, when I first saw the movie Red Dawn, I was like 12 years old. <laughs> and I was convinced after watching that, that the Soviets were coming to attack at, at any moment. And, you know, my dad had to explain to me, he had to convince me that, you know, the Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. We're, this is before 9-11. He said, you know, we're safe. You don't have to worry. And uh, <laughs> reading your book, I got the same feeling. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm frightened. Yeah. And so I, I guess my first question is, how do you spend all day researching and writing about these topics without, you know, becoming a, a doomsdayer? Um, it's hard. Uh, my, my wife, my wife has to sometimes leave me alone for a period of time because I can be depressing, I guess, <laughs> but, um, but it's gotten better. I, I tend to kind of channel all that on the lecture circuit and then I come home and sort of decompress and I'm kind of a normal human being, uh, <laughs> at, at, for her. Um, but I, I, I think that the book, I tried to get this across toward the end. There is hope. There is a way forward. It's not all bleak. Um, we have the power within our hands, uh, you know, as a nation, as a republic, to to really correct course in a way that most other regime types can't. And so, right now is the inflection point. And I wrote the book because I think there is hope. I wouldn't have written it if I thought it was all lost. And so I sort of prescribe in the book how we go forward over the next 10 to 12 years to avoid the space Pearl Harbor, to avoid the, uh, you know, the, the next world war that I think is slowly happening before our eyes. How do we get out of this situation without losing our status in the world? And, and, I, and I think there is a way forward. And one of the main themes, I, th I think really the main theme of the book is you talk about how for America to remain the power that it is, we need to dominate space and that right. some other strategy like deterrence, you're just trying to prevent other countries from becoming dominant isn't enough. We have to right. be forward, be a leader and be dominant in space. Why is it that dominance is so vital? Well, so in this case, we, we talk a lot in the in the d defense establishment world about uh, you know um, the United States being uh, threatened by asymmetrical powers that there's an imbalance and and actually while the United States is the most conventionally potent force in the world, our rivals don't seem to be cowed by that. They seem to be developing alternative methods. The Chinese in the 1990s wrote a very famous treatise on how they're going to fight the Americans. It was, a, it was called Unrestricted Warfare. It was by two senior uh, Chinese colonels who had witnessed the American uh, basically rolling back of Chinese threats against Taiwan in 1996 uh, by sailing two aircraft carriers through the Strait of Taiwan. So the, the, the Chinese, these two colonels figured out, well, there's a way we can fight and beat the Americans. It's just not going to be in a direct, fair military fight. So unconventional warfare. Well, the United States 
is the most dominant, most reliant upon space technology, satellites most notably, for all of our most basic military and civilian functions. So what I argue in the book is we should also use that imbalance to our advantage. And we should say to the rest of the world, because we've invested the most, because we've sustained the most level of commitment to space over the last 40 years, uh, really since the end of the Cold War, uh, we are going to exercise that control and that dominance not to, to, to oppress the world, but to actually ensure a fair and free, open uh, uh, use of space the way that we do on the high seas, the way we do in, with airspace. Um, that, that we've proven, we have a track record, in my opinion, as a nation, that while we are the dominant force, we're open and we're free and we're fair and we want the kind of global commons to be open and the space is now part of that global commons. And I think the Chinese, on the other hand, when you listen to them, when they talk about uh, space dominance, it's very different from what we mean. They refer, they, they, they always say they view the universe as an ocean and the moon as uh, the South China Sea. But we know what they're doing in the South China Sea, which is very hostile, and it's it's not being open. They want to push everybody around. They want to push the Americans out, keep the Japanese down, keep their neighbors down. This is not what the United States does when we talk about dominance. So it's a different interpretation of the word. We're the dominant power, yes, but we ensure that there's a free, fair, open you know, exchange of goods and services, and that's what we're talking about. Yeah, for the longest time, the the Western idea of China was that they're really not a threat. They don't create or innovate anything on their own. They just copy what we do, and they're you know they're really just a third world or second world country. And yeah. that's that's shifted. I, I think that's shifted in the general public's mind, and it's shifted in reality as well. Is that right. they are now considered a main threat. But how did China go from what we thought of them? I mean, in my own lifetime, you know, maybe fifteen years ago, to what they are now. So the Chinese have learned very closely at our feet. They, they studied America's rise. One of the most popular uh, documentary series in the early 2000s on China's state television uh, network was actually a 10-part documentary on Theodore Roosevelt, the Great White Fleet, and sort of the rise of American imperialism. So the Chinese have been very keenly interested in what makes great powers great. And they focused a lot not on Russia, not on the Soviet Union, because they fell. They focused a lot on the Americans and, and how the Americans rose. And what they assessed was, you have to be a forward-leaning, innovative power. And how you get to that level, the, they looked at the competition in the 19th century between the British Empire and the Americans. Now, it wasn't a Cold War, but in the 19th century, the Americans were engaged in what we today would define as industrial espionage against the British Empire. Uh, notably, the, the example I use in the book is Samuel Slater. Samuel Slater was a young man working in the textile mills in Great Britain. Now, this was one of the, this was the backbone industry of 
Britain's industrial empire. And in fact, there were laws imposed that did that prevented British citizens from offloading that that information and technology to other countries because it was proprietary. And what uh, Slater did was he said, you know, I'm from uh, a no name family. I'm never going to be able to rise to where I think I should rise in British society. I'm going to take what I know and I'm going to go across the Atlantic to the newly formed United States in agrarian backwater, 13 states. Nobody believed it would make anything of itself. But there, they promote their innovators and entrepreneurs, no matter what their background is. So he went over to Rhode Island, and he's known today as the father of the American factory system, the factory system that ultimately displaced the British Empire as the dominant industrial power by 1945. Well, uh, in Britain, if he's remembered at all, it's by the epithet of uh, Slater the traitor. And it's because the British keenly understood that he did what we today would call industrial espionage. And from that one act of industrial espionage, he was able to spur the American juggernaut into action. Over the next 150 years, America displaced the Brits. And you know we were mass-producing technology. We were keeping up. We were stealing whatever we had to to stay ahead. And this is basically what the Chinese have been doing to the United States today. Only in this case, the Chinese are playing the role of the upstart Americans, and we today are playing the role of our cousins, the, the British Empire. And they're applying that with great diligence in uh, China. So you see today imitation. Yes, they were imitative for the last 30 years, but that was just to, to create an indigenous industrial base. And now that they have that indigenous industrial base, they're now starting to actually go from imitators to innovators. And I would point your reader or your viewers to uh, Shenzhen. Shenzhen is a dynamic city in, in China. It was it's right across from Hong Kong. It began its existence as nothing more than a place where they mass-produced copycat cell phones from the West. Today, because of that imitation base, they were then able to segue and turn Shenzhen into the capital of the world's 5G, now 6G almost, uh, network base that China has dominance in. So they've gone from imitator to innovator, and they're doing that across the board in virtually every high-tech sector. So what can we learn from what happened with Britain to prevent that from happening here? I think probably, I mean, you read these stories all the time about all these Chinese nationals who are coming to America to get educated and then, you know, going back home and taking that knowledge to China. I think that's probably how China's, you know, their number one way of, of taking our knowledge and bringing it back home. So, you know, you don't want to prevent people from coming from other countries and and studying at our universities because that's how we get new knowledge is by bringing new people. in. so how, how do you strike that balance? Well, there's a great example, and I don't remember, I remember I researched it, I can't remember now if it was in the in the chapter, one of the chapters, but there's a great example of the, the father of the Chinese Communist Party's rocket program. This man was actually one of Robert Oppenheimer's students, uh, who was the, one of the fathers of the, the atomic weapons program here in the United States. Um, He was caught up, because he was a Chinese national, he was caught up in the McCarthy Red Scare, and he was forced to leave the United States and go back to China. Well, Mao was waiting with open arms because he knew this guy could, you know, further the, the Chinese nuclear and ballistic w- missile programs, you know, by, by light years. And he was 
treated like a pampered prince. And he, for until the 90s, worked assiduously as the godfather of China's ballistic missile and nuclear weapons program, of, of their space program as well. Uh, all of that knowledge that he learned in the West, he did not want to go back home to China when he was forced to go. We should have kept him. We should have, you know, made him, promoted him. And I think we have a lot of examples today where young Chinese students are coming here and they don't necessarily want to go back home, but they don't have a choice. So we need to figure out a way without disrespecting the fact that we do need to have immigration standards. We also want to create a situation where we keep the best and brightest from abroad and have them working here and don't make it where they're not welcome. So that's one thing we can do on the immigration side. Another thing we could do is prevent Chinese state enterprises from reaching out to our best and brightest to woo them over to China. My wife was doing her PhD in genetics at Yale, and her cohort, she and her cohort, were constantly given these blasts of emails from Chinese state enterprises saying, come to China, do your proprietary research in our labs, build a genetics lab in Wuhan, and we will, as a bonus, we will pay for off all of your student loans, not just from your graduate studies, but going back to your undergrad. That'll be a bonus. And then, by the way, we can ensure that you will be given more money than you ever would working out of, as, a, as a junior assistant, research assistant coming out of college in America. You will be the, the, the star. Uh, my wife, obviously, I told her it's not happening, but my wife's friends, they didn't see the problem. Why not? They're going to do the same research over there they would have done here, but they're going to be able to live better and, and pay off their student loan debt a lot sooner. They didn't see the national security implications. So it's not just Chinese students that are being targeted by China. It's also American students of all backgrounds. My wife is from Virginia. She's, you know, she's she's not Chinese by any step, but they didn't matter. They were targeting everybody because it's if you have a talent and they can try to figure out how they can manipulate you to come over there. And in the process of building out this industrial base for the new industrial revolution. The Chinese are, in turn, getting Western capital and Western businesses to invest not in the United States and Europe, but to invest in China. So in the book, I talk about the field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. China has that mentality. They're trying so hard to build out the necessary infrastructure to do high-tech R&D with very little ethical restraints within China so that they get Western capital infusion. And that spurs the innovation and the growth indigenously, and that makes China a counterweight in, in the quest for the new industrial revolution. And that could potentially make China the dominant player in that new industrial revolution, of which space plays a huge role. And you see all of this playing out publicly with celebrities who will, you know, John Cena was the latest one who will bend yeah. the knee to the CCP. That's right. Not even, not even because, you know, the, the uh, Chinese officials got to him, but just because they see a lot of money in China as right. a market. Would your policy solution be that we need to just cut off the Chinese market just to say, hey, this is off limits because this is not just another market that wants to trade goods. Right, right. So one of the things related to this, one of the things that we see with Western tech companies is their, um, to get access to that very lucrative Chinese market, 
they are doing tech transfers. So they think, hey, it's just an opening gambit in a trade deal, and we're going to be able to get access to this market and do business there, and it'll be great. Our shareholders will be happy. Everybody wins. It's a win-win. But it's not. What happens is China takes those trade secrets, and then they fold them into their indigenous capabilities. They then, with that knowledge, build out indigenous competitors to the Googles, to the Apples, to the Amazons over time, so that ultimately it's Chinese state firms that are competing and beating, in many cases, the American and Western ones, until ultimately they're running the show. So something that I've advocated, I used to work on Capitol Hill, something that I've been advocating since 2015 is to say, hey, why don't under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, we label any tech transfer as an illegal bribe to be prosecuted under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And you can also use that same mentality with Hollywood and say, hey, look, we've got these laws that are supposed to uphold human rights internationally. Well, we've got the greatest violator of human rights right now in China with the Uyghurs, with the Falun Gong, with Hong Kong, with the Christians of China. People forget there is a genocide of Christians going on in China. So why don't we use our state power to impose some kind of regulation upon what should not be allowed, which is the free advertising and promotion of the Chinese regime. Remember Marvel. I'm a big nerd. I love the comic books. I love all that. Marvel, to gain access to the Chinese market for, I think it was Iron Man 3, uh, they had to basically create for the Chinese version, a pro-Chinese character and use a very popular Chinese star uh, in order to gain access to the, the Chinese market for one of the Avengers movies. I think it might have been Age of Ultron. They had to, they had to basically create a storyline that was exclusive to China that promoted the Chinese regime in a positive way. And they did it because it was a billion dollars they were going to get. So why wouldn't they? Um, but at the same time, of course, these, these uh, movies studios are bashing the United States, systemic racism, you know, all of that. Uh, so we need to start, I think, frankly, creating rules and laws that, that basically label those sorts of things as this isn't freedom of speech. You are doing the bidding of a hostile foreign government. You are, you are serving as a conduit for their propaganda, and we won't allow that anymore. China, Alibaba, for instance, has bought up most of Hollywood. One of the Star Trek movies that came out recently, Into Darkness, I think was, was funded almost entirely with Chinese money or a large portion of it. So this can't be allowed, you, because now we're seeing, for instance, Richard Gere, who may be a, a left-wing person, but I know for a fact he cannot get employed in Hollywood, and he's a great actor. He can't get employed in Hollywood, not because he's lost his talent, but because he's not bankable in China because he's so uh, much involved with the Free Tibet movement. That can't be allowed. So you write a lot about different technologies that countries like yeah. China are developing that we're falling behind on. Right. Uh, one of the scariest ones to me was quantum computing. Can you, yes. just in layman's terms, explain quantum computing and, and how that's being used? So the computing revolution that we've all become accustomed to was based on silicon computer chips, basically, silicon-based technology. The United States pioneered it. Um, uh, the Chinese are trying to figure out a way to 
create a new form of computing that's more powerful, that's faster, and that will basically replace the, the American-created silicon-based computing revolution. And they think quantum is one of those technologies. Quantum computing is in its infancy right now. Uh, and it's true that American firms like Google and IBM are also involved in this. But China has an all-of-society commitment to developing and building out quantum technology. And how it works is basically it was first uh, observed by Albert Einstein in the lab in the 1930s. He called it spooky action at a distance. It freaked him out. He hated quantum mechanics. But basically, it's, it says that um, a particle can exist in the same in two different places at the same time. And you can come in with technology and manipulate that particle to transmit and carry large amounts of data instantaneously. Now, uh, quantum communications is already underway. Quantum internet, China has the only working, it's rudimentary, but they have the only working uh, quantum internet right now. They have a satellite in orbit since 2016. The French and the Germans are heavily invested in this as well. We're seeing not just rival states starting to look at this as a potential uh, uh, overthrow of the American-based World Wide Web, but also allied countries or purportedly allied countries like Germany and France who are tired of the NSA you know, eavesdropping on them uh, because basically we have all the access through the telecommunications uh, network that we built, we have the ability to tap into those because there are networks, basically. Well, China's building out an, a rival network, quantum internet, based on quantum computing, um, that basically will allow them to transmit large volumes of data, relatively unhackable data, instantaneously. Michio Kaku, the famous uh, physicist uh, in New York, uh, he said that if aliens are communicating, they are likely using some form of quantum communication because it's so next level. Uh, China, China is the only country, is the only place right now where you can have actual quantum internet capabilities. Very rudimentary. But big things have small beginnings, and China has the first mover advantage. And eventually, I believe this will be scaled up. And because China, like with 5G, China has the first mover advantage, all the money, all the innovators, all of that, it's going to go to China rather than the West. This is a game changer, and we're not involved in the race yet. We don't view it as a problem, and it is. And quantum computing is related to that. Because it, it, it would basically be greater computing capability than the, the greatest supercomputer right now if it's built out fully. So imagine quantum with all their research, uh, China, with all their research into artificial intelligence. Well, what do you need for AI? You need a lot of computing power. Well, quantum computing could allow that. So China could then be marrying up artificial intelligence to quantum computing. And now you've got you know, stuff of science fiction going on here. And China's committed to these things. They recognize all of these as potential leapfrog exotic technologies they could use to beat the Americans in the new industrial revolution. We haven't even really taken the field yet. Is there a reason we haven't prioritized quantum computing? Because it seems like we do prioritize AI, at least sort of in the right. general public. Right. You hear about AI all the time, but you don't hear about quantum computing. Why is that? Right. 
Well, I, th I think it's because it, it, 2006, Google made the first breakthrough in quantum computing. Technically, they have claimed quantum supremacy since then, but it's sort of an organic, ambiguous thing where it's constantly the more players get involved to develop their own version, you know, the, the more likely that Google will not be the su supreme uh, quantum uh, entity anymore uh, with quantum computing. Um, the reason is because and we see this in the space program. We see this throughout Western society. We've become a nation of really bad skeptics. We become risk averse. We don't. We like the way we do things. We don't really want to change it. We're heavily invested in the old way of doing things. China isn't. So China's saying, why don't we just try something new? And so they have that sort of leap without looking mentality that once defined the United States in the 19th century, you know, when we were discovering the Wild West, that did that, that allowed for us to create the you know, first flight, to create uh, the space program, to go to the moon before anyone else. But that mentality, that sort of frontiersman mindset, it's actually found in China today. It's not really being found here in the United States. It's a sea change in the way that we look at the world and we operate. And, and it's very sad because I actually think that we could easily catch up to the Chinese and beat them. It just requires the kind of investment and political commitment that the, the high-tech revolution of the last century and even the industrial revolution of the 19th century in the United States had. In the last century, it wasn't a libertarian's paradise, Silicon Valley, okay? It wasn't all private sector doing their thing, you know, divorced from government. In the 1940s and 50s, it took government funding to build out the infrastructure. Uh, Mariana Mazzucato calls it the moment when John Maynard Keynes shook Adam Smith's hand. And so you had public sector investment that built out the infrastructure to do radical, long-term, high-tech R&D. And then that lowered the risk for venture capital to come in and say, you know what? We're going to now bring our resources to bear and our private innovators, and they're going to spin off. And the government said, great, and whatever technology you develop, we will get the first dibs in terms of you know, uh, any kind of strategic applications. China's doing the same thing. But since the 1990s, our American federal government investment in research and development has precipitously declined at precisely the moment that China began their massive upsurge in federal R&D projects. So towards the end of the book, you talk about how this is, a lot of this is a cultural thing. And yeah. when you when you poll uh, students, children in China and compare it to students in America about what they want to be when they grow up, and I forget what age this was, but I've seen this poll before. The Chinese students, the number one answer is astronaut. Yep. And in America, the number one answer is YouTube star or vlogger. Yep. Yeah. And I always I hate to be the person who says, oh, you know, this generation is going to be the destruction of everyone, because right. every generation I know says that. But yes. this does seem to be something quantitative that when you pull yes. American students in previous generations, they did say they wanted to be astronauts or engineers right. or doctors. Right. And, and that, that does seem to be something right. new that's changed in the culture. How big of a role is that? Yeah. And how, how afraid are you of, of that change in the culture? And, and I say this fully aware that I am on the internet. I have a website. I'm, you know, I get all that, uh, but I also have a, a CV of experience, you know, in the real world. Um, I did not set out, for instance, to do this for a living. This was not my life. I, I, li I like it, but this was not my ambition. Um, but 
my concern is that- I'm just as guilty as you are. Right, I'm even right, more guilty. Yeah. I have less of a That's resume. Right. That's right. My concern though is that we, we are creating a generation that is heavily dependent on technology, on a certain way of doing things. Um, we have to force feed young people information. I remember when I, when I worked on the Hill and my wife who's running a huge part of a hospital down here, she's telling me all the young nurses that are new trainees are waiting to be force fed information, like stuff that like you just need to know as a nurse and not expect the institution to kind of show you everything. And I saw this when I worked on the Hill with the interns where it was just kind of common sense things they were completely incapable of figuring out on their own. Um, so there's a certain kind of uh, mentality that's that's different now with the young people. They're not the pioneers. They're not the go-getters. They're not the you know the the astronauts, the people who wanted to go into the unknown and explore. They they like the creature comforts and the accoutrements of modern society. Um, whereas in China, while they certainly do like their modern creature comforts, there's a different ethos there. And I think it's because in many people's lives they can remember. Starvation. They can remember, you know, their little red books of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, you know, many of the people who are entrepreneurs living in the cities today are actually not from families in the city. They came in from the very poor countryside. I mean, poor countryside, not like we're from America, you know, countryside. This is like bad. And so a lot of them have that get up and go because they know the alternative is, my goodness, we'll be living in squalor. And so they want to perfect themselves. They, and then in doing so, that has sort of a, a, an outward you know, impact on society writ large. So it's a different culture. Plus, the Chinese regime itself, while they certainly are, they, they have the political trappings of the communist regime, their rhetoric is much closer to actually the nationalists, the old nationalists. They want to make China great again. They want to, um, you know, uh, reclaim the mantle of the Middle Kingdom. For 5,000 years, China has existed. 5,000 years. We've existed for over 200 years in this country. That's maybe as long as one of their dynasties in China's history. So the Chinese have a long historical memory. They teach their children from very early to never forget national humiliation. And what that's a reference to is the very short period of time in recent history when China was laid low, they believe, by rapacious Western colonial empires. They lumped the United States in with that, even though it was mostly the British and European empires. And they teach their children that you must compete with the Americans. And that has become sort of the, the ethos of China. And the Chinese people, they want to be great. They want to be seen as great. And they, many of them believe the Americans are in terminal decline, and it's only a matter of time before they will naturally replace us. So why not develop all of this new capability and technologies and this new economy in China rather than having to go over to the West where we are racists and imperialists and, and the like? So there is this, this mentality that's different. And when you, when you look at China's tech sector, I talk to a lot of venture 
capitalists who invest in China's technology sector. And you see this play out in Kai-Fu Lee's, um, Kai-Fu Lee's book, um, uh, AI Superpowers, in which he details the race for super AI supremacy between the two powers. What he says and what I've seen is that all of the things we complain about China's behavior on the world stage, stealing intellectual property, you know, pilfering talent, all that sort of the underhanded dealings and whatnot. Well, Chinese state companies do that to each other. It is a, it is a rapacious, competitive, internal technology sector in China. And the Chinese government encourages that. They want their people tearing each other down and because they believe that the creative destruction will create something truly innovative that will allow the Chinese regime to capitalize on that innovation and work that into their larger quest for dominance. Whereas in the West, you see, you know, Peter Thiel talks a lot about this as sort of the great slowdown in tech development. And I point this out in my book thoroughly. And I think that's also because in Silicon Valley, in particular, there's this cooperative framework where everybody wants to kind of consolidate and cooperate, uh, you know, with each other. It's, it's, it's not like that in China. China, it's very much almost like, you know, the Wild West or even the first generation of tech entrepreneurs. Remember, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates hated each other. It's more like that only times 20. And um, I think that that creates a mentality uh, there that we are lacking, where they want to be the dominant and they want their children to be the dominant. They don't want to see America still being the dominant in 100 years. Yeah, you brought up Peter Thiel. One of my favorite lines from Peter Thiel, and I think you included this in the book, is he said, we asked for flying cars and we got 140 characters, referring to Twitter. It's like right. it's basically saying that's our big innovation was, right. was Twitter and social media right. when we expected right. it to be flying cars and, right. and living in space. And part of that, as Peter Thiel talks about, is the over-regulatory environment that we've created for high tech. The reason that social media and sort of the software side, the app side of Silicon Valley was able to take off since the late 80s and 90s, honestly, and I say this as somebody who worked on Capitol Hill, is because our legislators didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And so they couldn't regulate what they didn't understand. But our legislators do understand biotech. And they get scared. Oh, we'll build the stuff of life. We don't. So we're going to really regulate that. Or, you know, the, the rockets. Well, we're going to regulate Elon Musk from launching willy nilly because we don't want them to blow up. And we don't, you know, so they understand the kind of the, the physical innovations and the downside risks. They didn't understand what social media or what the internet companies, what the app companies, what they could do in terms of exercising control, in terms of influencing politics and political discourse today. They're only just now understanding it. And it's frankly, it's probably too late uh, because those companies have solidified their hold on society and the political process. And the the big ticket issues, though, the stuff like the Apollo type missions and, and, you know, the, the physical, really wild innovations, we can't do that anymore because the regulatory environment is so onerous. Oddly enough, in communist China, they can. And in fact, they encourage it. Like I said, I could talk to you about each one of these topics for hours and hours, but there's so much I want to ask you about. So I want to ask you about the moon. Yeah. So, you know, we went to the moon 53 years ago now. That's when we landed on it. We realized it wasn't made of cheese. 
There weren't any green <laughs> men on it. You know, there weren't really any resources at all. You know, we did a few other smaller missions there, but we kind of gave up on the moon. We, you know, right. in America, we kind of figured we moved past it. And but on there. Right. But yeah. other countries still seem to be prioritizing the moon as, as a strategic yeah. importance. Why is that? So going back to the 50s, U.S. military planners recognized that the moon could have strategic applications. Remember, at that time, we were starting to deploy satellites. We were starting to create more and more dependence on satellite networks for things like surveillance, nuclear command and control functions, communications. And that's only gotten more complex over time. And what our military planners actually in the 1950s wanted to do, and Eisenhower laughed them off, much to my chagrin, they wanted to create a base, a military base, with nuclear weapons to be that could be launched into the Earth's uh, atmosphere, that could be launched to target uh, those satellite networks to blind the Soviets. Well, all of that has been out in the ether for a while. We never did anything with it. But the Chinese, like I said, they've been studying us, our rise for the last 150 years. And they've been seeing the dead ends we took to avoid. And they've been seeing where we should have gone but didn't. And one of those concepts was the militarization of the moon, the weaponization of the moon. So today, some of our most sensitive, America's sensitive military satellites exist in what's known as geo synchronous orbit, GEO for short. Things like the nuclear command and control, NC3 functions. Things like uh, the wideband global SATCOM. 70% of the U.S. Army's weapons systems rely on this to communicate and operate. Uh, things like the MUOS, multi-user objectives uh, uh, system, that the Navy relies on for everything. Battle management, deployment across the high seas. You lose that, the Navy's blind. They can't operate very well. And so those systems are in geo and they've been relatively, they haven't really been updated because they're so far away, it's hard to shoot down from earth. It can be done, but it's very onerous on the, 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 the country attacking. But if you put a system on the moon with clear line of sight, you can debilitate those, those critical American satellites, and it's actually much closer. Geo is actually somewhat closer to the moon than it is to Earth. And so you can, and you can put systems in the Lagrangian points that separate the moon, and Mar the moon and Earth. So you can put weapon systems, resupply depots. You can put whatever there that can interfere with and corrupt the natural proper operation of these extremely important uh, military satellites that are very hard to replace, by the way. And so that's one thing. And also, you could conceivably launch surreptitiously a surprise attack uh, on the, the Earth from the moon using the gravity well to pull uh, weapons down. It would be very hard to attribute. Uh, we talk about attribution. Well, you could launch them on an orbit away from the moon to loop back around the Earth and then land on your given target using physics. And so these are so they sound gonzo to many people, but I'm telling you, this is what 
notably the Chinese as well as the Russians are looking at, because they know in a fair fight under under current conditions, they can't beat the Americans, but they're not going to kowtow to us. So they're going to develop alternative strategies that could believably, you know, restrain and stymie the American military juggernaut. And this is where things are going. I was in another interview earlier and I said, think of it as uh, America's World War II island hopping strategy. So we went to the various small islands on the way from Pearl Harbor all the way to the Japanese mainland. And we did that for four years and it was a hard fight. It was a slog, but we were able to conquer the Indo-Pacific with that strategy. Something similar is at play with the solar system where you have Earth orbit, you have the Lagrangian points between the Earth and the Moon. You have Moon. You have the Earth-Moon system as a closed system, and with the Moon being the ultimate high ground above the whole of Earth. And then, by the way, you can then shoot off from the Moon to the resource-rich uh, asteroid belt. And from the asteroid belt, where you can mine trillions of dollars worth of rare Earth minerals, you can also go to Mars. And remember, the Chinese say they look at Mars as Huangyan Island, which is a contested island off the Philippines coast near the South China Sea. So the Chinese are telegraphing where they're thinking, and we're still not quite getting to where we need to get to. And it's going to pay. It's going. We're going to pay a price for it if we're not careful. Now we have this international outer space treaty that when you read it, it's this beautiful idealistic view that that space shouldn't be weaponized, that it should be this place where we can work together internationally to explore and to innovate. And, you know, my guess is if you ask the average American citizen or the average Chinese citizen, they would say, yeah, absolutely. I would love for that to be what space is like. Is that just utopian so long as you have these competing governments? Yeah, so in the book, I, I describe some of the, 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 the idiots, I think, who uh, run our national space policy, the academics and the engineers. You've got uh, the utopians who really want to keep space as a sanctuary, you know, devoid of human conflict and economic development. But of course, as I talk about in the book, the laws like the Outer Space Treaty were signed at a time when America and the other countries didn't have the capabilities to exploit space in the way that even five years after the signing of that treaty they did. So as you have capabilities evolving in space and countries becoming increasingly dependent on space and Now, other capabilities coming online were conceivably like space mining. You could have a long-term presence of large human colonies mining for lucrative rare earth minerals. The Outer Space Treaty is really a snapshot of 1969. It is absolutely not applicable to the modern environment, and it shouldn't be either, because the Outer Space Treaty was, as you say, a utopian gesture. It was not a realistic or pragmatic uh, solution to the real concern of what would happen if we got into a space war, and how do we mitigate some of the downside risk of increased human activity in space? You don't do that by ignoring human nature. We have thousands of years of human history. We compete, we fight, we struggle against each other for dominance. Why don't we create a set of treaties and laws that accept human nature for what it is? It is flawed, but it is fixed. And so things like the Artemis Accord that the Trump administration tried to get 
done, which basically was an update of the Moon Agreement of 1979 that we never ratified anyway, uh, basically would have helped to condition the world for the proper use and development, increased development of the Moon, without violating the rights of other countries. But, of course, the Russians didn't want it. Chinese don't want it. The, the utopians in our own government don't want it because they don't want to see us in space at all. And nowadays, Americans are being told you can't even use the term manned space flight because it's offensive. Uh, you can't use the term colonization. I mean, AOC said this uh, two years ago, that the term colonization of space is heteronormative, and it's, it is, it's unfair, and, it's, and it's, it harkens back to uh, when the, what, the genocide of the Native Americans. We don't even want to think about doing that. And so we have leaders in government, in our government today, who are very skilled in the art of self-deterrence, hamstringing the United States from being able to do the things it needs to do and creating laws and treaties that will hamstring the United States. The Chinese and Russians don't respect those laws anyway, but they're certainly going to use those laws to further hamstring us while they leapfrog us. Consider this. Uh, when the Outer Space Treaty was signed, the idea was not only were you going to prevent uh, kind of a war in space, you were going to prevent private companies from being able to go into space and do operations. Um, well, at the time, the Soviet Union was fine with that because they knew in the Soviet Union they didn't have private companies. They had state companies, and the Americans had private companies. So they thought, hey, we're going to hamstring the Americans, and then we, the Soviets, under the, the, the flag of our government, will be able to do what we want in space. And uh, the same logic applies to China today, where you see state capitalism, the fusion of public and private sector. Russia has the same setup today. Russia's also state capitalist. Uh, so now you have where conceivably, under these laws, American private companies and innovation will be hamstrung, while Chinese state companies or Russian state companies will not be. That's an unfair advantage. And that's one of the reasons why the group I was part of on the Hill in 2015, with Obama actually being supportive of it, former President Obama, signed the, uh, the we, we, we created and, and had him sign the uh, uh, Space Launch Competitiveness Act which basically told American private companies, you can't claim an asteroid as your own territory, but if you can get to an asteroid that's resource rich, you can take the resources from that asteroid and sell it back on Earth. And that's how we're sort of navigating this ridiculous, uh, you know, outdated, frankly, outer space treaty. That's, I mean, that, that's what... It it, I'm a utopian at heart, so it's so hard for me to accept. You know, I read this treaty, and it, it looks so beautiful to me. Yes. And it's the same way I feel like when I read the Declaration of Independence. I have that hanging right behind yeah. me here. And and that's a utopian document. But I think you're right. The difference is that with this treaty is you have other countries that say, yeah, sure, go ahead, be utopian. And well, we'll that helps yeah, us undermine you even more right. easily. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think also you have a legal background, so you understand with the Declaration of Independence, it's in a way a national law, right? right. So under the, the U.S. government, the monopoly of force, the, the monopoly, the, the ability to enforce that sort of legal idea of the Declaration of Independence and, and the, the Constitution, the U.S. government can conceivably ensure that that regime applies right. to the 50 states. But there is, in the international level, this is why I can't stand international law, uh, there is no real 
you know, enforcement body other than other nations deciding at will when to enforce and how well to enforce a given international law. So it's all based on realpolitik and, uh, you know, that fallen nature of man and the idea that nation states ultimately will do what's in their own best interests. And that's not law then. That's that's just international relations. It's not international law. And so the idea that we're going to have some overarching international body governing the, the legal use of space, it's fantastical in my opinion. And it's detrimental to us because as you say, China and Russia, they're not respecting that. We're the only ones trying to you know adhere to it. And it's going to get us beaten. Right. It's funny because I one of the reasons I love international law is because I enjoy the chaos of it. I enjoy the yes. fact that that, yes. that at least on the international level, people accept that it is real politics. Yes. And and I yes. would argue domestically, it's the same way. It's just people aren't as willing to admit it. So that's I kind of like international law for that reason. Yes. But you're absolutely right. That makes it so much more difficult then to get everyone yeah, it's, to it's, it's agree based on anything. On what any other country wants to do. Exactly. It's really based on power. How much juice? Do right. you have as a as a nation to enforce your will or to defy? And just look at Russia and Crimea. Russia clearly violated every standard of international law when they went in and took Ukrainian territory. And yeah. Russia said, "Okay, West, what are you going to do about it?" Right. They didn't care. They laughed. Right. You know. And of course, we can't do anything about it because Russia has enough military power to deter us from doing anything about it. And yep. China's the same way in the South China Sea. And if we're not careful, they'll be the same way in space. And that's one of the most frightening things about your book is that if it were just China as the threat, maybe we could deal with yeah. one threat, but you also write about Russia and Iran and even North Korea. Right. And you know, when you study US foreign policy, it's inevitable you come across this theme that it seems like we are always funding our next enemy. Yeah. And so you wrote, you write in the book about how, you know, we helped to fund Iran's nuclear program in the fifties and yeah. we helped support Russia's space program in the nineties. Yeah. So should we just stop, especially with these, with these unstable countries? I mean, should we just completely stay away and just let them well, do so, it on their own? Yeah. So in generally, yes, but specific to say the Russian example, the reason we did that was very reasonable. Uh, it was, we were concerned in the 1990s, the chaos of post-Soviet Russia, that all those ballistic missile experts that worked for Roscosmos, the Russian space program, who were not being paid, who were broke and living in a, in a failed state basically, would say, we have a lot of knowledge we could sell our skills and knowledge to countries like North Korea or Iran. Basically, we were worried they were going to proliferate their knowledge of rocketry and nuclear weapons, et cetera, to rogue states. And we didn't want that. So we came in under the, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and the Nunn-Luger Bill. Uh, we came in and basically literally in some cases were directly funding Roscosmos to stay afloat. And then at the same time, we sent our experts and our Western capitalists in to show the old Soviet um, uh, defense conglomerates who knew, who were specializing in space technology. We showed them how to diversify and how to become real capitalist enterprises that were innovative. And we did that so well that at least until very recently, Russia was producing 
producing some of the most advanced, cheap rockets uh, imaginable. The RD-180, for instance, we, was so good. Elon Musk got a view of it five years ago. He said it was the most brilliant rocket design he's ever seen. And it was so good, in fact, that we were using that system to launch sensitive, covert U.S. military satellites for decades on. It was only until the Crimean invasion in 2014 and John McCain's intervention that we actually said, this is not a good idea to have half of our fleet being launched into space on Russian rockets. And the Russians were saying, if you're going to sanction us for Crimea, if you're going to sanction our pipelines and our people, we're going to prevent you from getting access to the RD-180. And they certainly were trying that. And it was a real problem because we need to launch those systems into orbit to stay dominant and competitive in space. And so, and with, with, the, with the Iranians, the same thing. Under the Shah, which who was completely misunderstood, he was a great guy. Um, he was going to get them to the modernity and without being a threat to the U.S. Um, we basically funded the through the Atoms for Peace program under, beginning under Eisenhower. We gave them the first nuclear technology. We gave them ballistic missile technology, conceivably to be used to deter Soviet invasion of that part of the world. And of course, when the Shah was overthrown, thank you, Jimmy Carter, uh, when the Shah was overthrown and the Islamists took over, they said, we now have this technology, we're going to use it for our nuclear weapons program to deter the Americans and to threaten our neighbors. And so that became folded into their threat to us. And we very much helped them build out that capability unknowingly. And so, yes, we should be more careful. In the case of Russia, though, what we should have done was not spend the last 30 years doing everything in our power to make them into the enemy that they are today. Because initially, not only did Boris Yeltsin want Russia to become a component of the American-dominated world order, but also in the beginning, Vladimir Putin did as well. Vladimir Putin in 1999, this is, this is, there's a great book by Peter Conradi called Who Lost Russia? And, and he documents how Putin in the 90s, in the late 90s and early 2000s, was doing everything he could to befriend America, to make Russia a real partner of America's led world order. He did not want to challenge the American-led world order. It was only after 2003 and 2004, the Iraq invasion, and what we did in Ukraine with the Orange Revolution, that Putin snapped and said, I can never trust these people. And that was that. That was that. And we made Russia partly, took two to tango. Russia's not innocent in this either. But it took two to tango. But we did play a significant role in making Russia into the kind of threat it was. So if we hadn't done that, funding their space program really wouldn't have mattered. But now it does, and now it comes back to bite us. And that's a microcosm of what we spent the last 50 years doing across the board with China, you know, on a much larger scale. Well, and now it seems like we're in this weird, or I guess we've always been in this weird menage a trois with Russia and China, yeah. where you know, no, none of the three of us have ever really fully trusted each other. But now it seems like Russia and China are working more and more closely That's together. Right. Which... And what's the one place that the two powers of Russia and China want exclusive cooperation? What's the one place where they're going into hyperspeed in terms of cooperation? Space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how, how big of a threat is that? What is it that they're doing together? So basically, our private companies continue to be the silver bullet. 
right? They continue to be the thing that keeps us competitive in the new space race. Our government is doing everything in its power to regulate and stunt and stymie, like Elon Musk. You know, they've tried to regulate those launches. They, you know, Bill Nelson last week, the NASA director, came out and said that the space under my watch is not going to become a wild west for billionaires and anybody who wants to blast themselves into space. And I'm thinking, why not? And I'm thinking that's how the Chinese view it. Why wouldn't we? That's how you innovate. But anyway, so China and Russia still. They still can't innovate the way the private sector can. It requires a lot of state resources to keep up with us. Now you're seeing those two states fuse in high-tech development, specifically related to space. I think it's going to grow out elsewhere as well, where basically you could potentially now be watching the nightmare scenario of all geopolitical experts going back to the turn of the 20th century. People like Halford Mackinder, who warned the British at the time, he said the world's divided into maritime and continental powers, and if you're a maritime power like the British Empire or the United States, you can cannot let the Eurasian landmass become dominated by indigenous power or a group of powers like, in this case, China or Russia, because that's where the world's majority of resources, its population, that's where its arable land is. It's all in the what he called the world island of Eurasia, Europe and Asia. And if the British and the Americans and other maritime powers can keep those powers divided and squabbling against each other, we'll be able to dominate the world. But if those continental powers start to unite and conglomerate, then you have a whole different picture. Then you have a real threat. And this is the basis, by the way, of China's uh, you know, vision, is they want to become the hub of a Eurasian-dominated world order. And space is a key conduit of that. And by aligning with Russia, which is technically the number two most powerful space station, China's the rising third. By aligning that, China's basically taking all their money, Russia's out of money, so they're taking all their money and giving it to the more advanced Russians, and the two of them are co coalescing together. And so that is a real threat because our private sector, without the kind of cooperation and support of the public sector that we saw in the previous century with high-tech development, without that, our private sector won't be able to stay competitive, won't keep America competitive, and the two great hegemons or the two great behemoths of Eurasia, Russia and China will defeat us in the new space race. You brought up money, and that's you know my question with anything like this is you know it sounds very expensive to get us to where we need to be, and you know we're thirty nine trillion dollars, I think twenty nine trillion dollars in debt right now mm -hmm. as a country, and even if I accept you know, all of your arguments about this is vital for our survival. Right. You know, if someone came to me and said, "Hey, Eric, we need you to go and buy the Mona Lisa, or else we'll kill you," I'd have to say, "I, I guess I'll die because I I don't have the money to buy the Mona Lisa." Right. So, how how is it that we could actually afford to do what we need to do so, to get up to speed? When you look at what we're spending money on over the last couple of years, with the trillion, you're throwing trillions of dollars at all these different issues, um, very few of them are actually growth issues. They're, they're, they're not things that will have a reliable return for the American taxpayer, okay? We need to help people I know that are, that are less fortunate, but that, that, that is a, a net drain on our resources. We're printing money and spending that money, devaluing our currency, expanding our debt, which China then buys up, uh, uh, 
without getting much of a return. What I'm talking about are industries that will be in the future high growth. They'll start out with low growth, but they will be high growth. And so we can, for instance, you know, the, the space mining economy, the nascent space mining economy, worth trillions and trillions of dollars. For instance, there's a mineable asteroid near Earth that's worth 700 quintillion dollars. The overall GDP of the world is 32 trillion. We're talking several magnitude, the orders of magnitude higher, okay? China wants to harvest that. Elon Musk said he's watching that asteroid very closely. So we have the ability with one asteroid to make more money and tax that money, particularly if they're American corporations doing it, and have a return on that investment that can then translate into social programs and you know infrastructure projects. So in the short term, it's a huge upfront buy, but you're getting an even larger long-term uh, uh, return that also will create multiplicity of spin-off innovations and industries. So that to me is worth spending a couple trillion dollars on because we'll actually be investing in the future. What we're doing right now with all the relief packages, I agree morally, we have to do it. It certainly helped me, it helped my family during a time of distress, but that is not the kind of high reward, long-term innovation, long-term investment for our tax dollars. We can't sustain that. And we're seeing that today with inflation. We're seeing that today with some of the really insane things going on in the economy. It's not sustainable. And ultimately, it's short-term thinking that's not going to let us be the dominant power in the long term. What I'm talking about, big investment up front, but look at the last century. It was a big investment for Silica, into Silicon Valley by the U.S. taxpayer. But look at everything we got in return. And so that's what I'm talking about, only on a scale that's much larger than that. And that's how the Chinese are viewing it. The Chinese are very keenly focused on dominating that mining market to fund the war machine on Earth. I think I, I I know the answer to this question, but I have to ask this for my utopian pacifist side. Is there any potential avenue for de-escalization? Is, is there any way you can see this yeah. working out where it doesn't have to become weaponized space? Well, in my opinion, we've already weaponized space. So the, the first thing is, like I mentioned earlier, space technology in particular is dual use. So what, what something that can be used in space in peacetime can very quickly be refashioned into a weapon of war. So for instance, um, the Chinese space station that just went up, they want, China wants to install a laser on that space station. They claim it would be used to clear dangerous debris from orbit that threatens all of humanity. Yet, in wartime, that same system could conceivably use, be used to blind and dazzle critical American systems in orbit. Similarly, uh, the, the Russians have launched with their Rodnik military communication satellites, um, these co-orbital satellites. They call them onboard repair drones. Basically, they say, well, we're sending these satellites high into orbit. It's very difficult to impossible if they go down for us to send someone up there to replace them. Better to have a robotic repair drone on hand that can remotely make any repairs to keep them 
you know, working. Well, that same system in wartime with its grappling arms can easily be sent to go after things like the wideband global satcom constellation, things like our surveillance, our keyhole satellites. They can be used to then gra grapple on to our satellites physically and push them from their orbits. And we don't have spares on hand or many spares on hand, which means that you then create a gap in America's satellite constellations that Russia or China could exploit on Earth. Because in the meantime, our forces, which are mostly forward deployed, they need those satellites for perfect timing and GPS and all that. Our forces will be rendered deaf, dumb, and blind. And we'll be operating very near the shores of China or Russia, and then they can run roughshod over us. And that's the real, that's one of the big issues. So the utopian side, I understand, but we've already, in my opinion, now that we know Russia has those systems in orbit, China also, well, they, they launched a reusable space plane on an automated test in November of last year. On its way back to Earth, it launched a secondary object. NORAD tracked it. It remains in orbit. The suspicion is that it is another one of these co-orbital satellites that could attack our satellites physically. So space, in my opinion, is already weaponized. But de-escalation. We can de-escalate the same way we de-escalated crises in the previous Cold War, through deterrence. Once we start putting our own co-orbital satellites in orbit, create bodyguard swarms of satellites around our sensitive communications, surveillance, command and control satellites to deflect any potential attack, and then also tell the Russians and Chinese, we have these systems in orbit, and they can be used to defend our systems, but equally can be used to go after your own systems. I think that will create a degree of deterrence. Right. But we have to do that first. So we have to weaponize space first in order to de-escalate and create a balance. Because deterrence is based on balance of power. Right. And right now, there isn't a balance. There's a severe imbalance. And it sounds like a modern version kind of of Reagan's Star Wars system, right? It, yeah. It can be a defensive system that yes, it needs yes. to so be Yes, yes. That's important offensive. to note. Star Wars, as it was conceived, was not an offensive system. In fact, at one point, Reagan was even talking about including the Soviets in that system at one point to try to entice Gorbachev. But ultimately, of course, we know that the system never, never got off the ground, if you will. Uh, the program exists today in a different name, but... Uh, um, the Strategic Defense Initiative was ahead of its time. We can do it today. We should do it, particularly, as Ted Cruz has talked about, given the threat of nuclear rogue states like Iran and North Korea. We need to have the capability to track and believably shoot down any potential missile, nuclear missiles these countries would fire at us and our allies. We don't yet. It's a big problem. There's no reason why we shouldn't. They need you to write the next James Bond movie because that would be the most fascinating action movie ever made. Yeah, you know, the I stuff think, you're I talking think about. Mr. Bond has become Mrs. Bond, if I'm not that's, mistaken. Oh, that's a, that's <laughs> I forgot they recap. Of course. Well, that's that's the world we're in today. <laughs> you write you're very optimistic in the book about a lot of the policies that Trump instituted or at least yes. talked about related to this stuff. Got me a lot of hate mail over the last <laughs> year. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it did. <laughs> Uh, how much of that policy, especially when it comes to like the Space Force, how much of that is continuing post-Trump? 
So for your audience's sake, the final draft of the book was turned into the publisher December 2019. So I didn't know who was going to, I just assumed given at the time the economy, people voted with their wallets was how I, that's how I, you know, look at it. And so I just assumed given that before COVID, before all that, that Trump was probably going to win. Um, but Biden actually, as we know, won and upset the whole thing. And I have been happily surprised with his general position on space. Whereas most of the political establishment took on the orange man is always bad, you know, mentality, Biden actually has carried over a lot of the policies that I attribute, you know, I give Trump great credit for starting. Biden's carrying that over. In fact, I have had more interaction in the last six months with the Biden administration than I did with the Trump administration. And they know that I did not support them. So I give Mr. Biden a lot of credit for doing the right thing. Um, where I, I do get critical of him in the press, you know, when I write my op-eds, is when I specifically think he's doing something specifically wrong, a policy, like Bill Nelson's comments about not letting the space become a Wild West. So I'll call out specific things I think he needs to perfect. But so far, I can't really complain too much about Mr. Biden's handling of space policy. And that's, by the way, a good thing. That is a net positive. It means maybe we can start making real headway because if we don't have bipartisan consensus on this issue, we're never going to get ahead. I do think Biden needs to stop going after the private space sector. I think he needs to encourage the freewheeling innovation that the Trump administration encouraged, regardless of the downside effects, because the long-term benefits will be far greater. And I also think that Mr. Biden really needs to embrace the space nationalist model and try to ensure that America remains dominant, not cooperate with China, remains dominant in space. And I'll let you go after this, but I'd be yeah. remiss if I didn't ask you, and you didn't write about this in the book, but what the hell is going on with UFOs? Yeah, yeah. So I actually have been been asked by the military to give insights into what it could be. I've actually been asked, uh, you know, to write op-eds, and I am not an ancient aliens guy. Sure. You know, I'm, I, I'm usually the guy saying it's not aliens, okay? Um, but the unidentified aerial phenomenon is very interesting because when you look up uh, the Google, go on Google and type in UFO patents, right? The first thing that comes up is Dr. Salvatore Pace, who worked for the Navy, now works for the Air Force, doing very covert things. But in the Google in the patents, you can go find at the Patent and Trademark Office's website. They are Navy official Navy patents. Things like inertia mass reduction technology. These are technologies the Navy has not only been interested in and invested in, but apparently they built working prototypes for NAVAIR a few years back. Tic-tac-shaped uh, vehicles that exhibit physics-defying features of the kinds that we see in these Navy and Marine videos about UAPs. Um, it's very possible that what we're witnessing, and I hope this is the case, that what we're witnessing is actually exotic 
U.S. Navy technology that's being developed and tested in restricted airspace. All of these sightings and recordings are happening in restricted airspace right. off the Virginia coast and the California coast. So, the, And they're with Navy and Marine Corps personnel. So my hope is that some small office in the Navy or in the government is testing this highly secretive experimental equipment on our best trained and best equipment, uh, you know, our best military people, and they don't know it. The alternative, in my opinion, is scarier. It's scarier than aliens. The alternative is this is advanced Chinese or Russian hypersonic vehicles, particularly Chinese, because we know as of a few weeks ago, China revealed they have the world's most advanced and sophisticated largest wind tunnel for testing and building hypersonic kill vehicles. It outstrips the Navy's Lens 2 hypersonic uh, wind tunnel. And with China's mass production capabilities, if they can figure out how to make one of these things work, which they very well may have, uh, they could mass produce a fleet of these technologies. Now, I was at Western Air Defense Sector a few weeks ago. They're in charge of protecting 70% of the nation's airspace from a foreign adversary. And what they have found is that their current air defense systems, they're very good. But when it comes to going up against potential hypersonic vehicles, our best systems can't conventionally defeat them. Right. So you're talking about China potentially fielding a capability that could launch a weapon from mainland China a hyper, on a hypersonic kill vehicle, and in less time than it takes for Domino's or Pizza Hut to get a pizza to your door, they could deliver a massive strike on the mainland United States, and we would not, with current air defense technologies, be able to defeat that. And by the way, on some of these vehicles being, being displayed in these videos, they look a lot like, they display a lot of the capabilities that a hypersonic vehicle would display. So that, to me, those two scenarios are more likely, either that it's ours or it's theirs, the Chinese or Russians. Um, the least fearful scenario is that it's aliens, because we've actually had kind of many years of interactions with these things, and they've never hurt us. But if it's China or Russia, you can bet they want to use those to hurt us. Yeah, that's... and. That's where my thinking's been. I would love their I would love it if it were aliens just because I'm on board and that'd be fun. But yes. I you have to assume it's just advanced military technology, hopefully ours. Yes. Yes. So, and yeah, that's the scary part though. It's not ours. <laughs> right, right. So leave me with some optimism. What is it yeah. that we can feel good about going forward when it comes to space policy? Well, like I said, the Biden administration is carrying over some of the good things that the Trump administration did. That's a plus. The, the, the fact that um, we now have a space force, it's part of the military. It cannot go away by presidential executive order. It will take an act of Congress to kill. This is a good thing. We can build off of it. The fact that I can tell you in the last two years, I've been become very busy because the military wants to talk to me and others like me, the few there are, who view space as a strategic domain. They want to talk to us because there is a long-term thought process about what do we do in space? 
How do we protect ourselves in space? How do we keep our enemies at bay in space? The fact that we have a private sector that is growing and dynamic in space, they need to be encouraged, not squelched. Uh, the fact that the United States is the inheritor of the world superpower status. It gives us a lot of inherent advantages. All we need is the political will to do the right thing, to do that which is actually kind of natural to us, and that is to outpace and out-innovate our, our enemies. And by the way, we still have some of the world's great greatest innovators. We still have some of the greatest idea makers. So all we need is to bring all these disparate parts together the way that Kennedy did in the 1960s to push ahead and stay dominant in space. And in staying dominant in space, we actually will make it safer for other countries and companies to operate in space the way we do for the high seas and air. And that's the optimism, is that we can do that. If Biden can follow through on Trump's policies, anything can happen. Right. Right. Well, that's a great place to end it. The book is Winning Space. You can buy it everywhere. I'll include a link in the show notes so people can get to it. Brandon Weikert, again, I could talk to you all day long about this. We should do this again then. I would love that. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.